This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by ABC's The Bachelorette. JoJo is back as the new Bachelorette. She's starting a new love story, her way, going from Ben to 26 new men, all hoping to be the one. The Bachelorette premieres at a special time, Monday, May 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, on ABC. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll talk about the current TV boom we're in and how it's actually affecting the industry. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And we also have Vulture TV reporters Joseph Adalian and Maria Elena Fernandez with us. Hey, guys. Howdy, guys. Hi. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us. So, you know, you two are really the experts here on the topic today. You've been working on this story about the TV boom for how long now? Uh, about four months or yeah. so. <laughs> 1,000 years. Exactly. We could have made a TV show in this point. <laughs> At least a pilot. What we're talking about here really is this idea of peak TV as, as it's become known. Um, this era we're living in where there's more than 400 TV shows on television. Streaming has changed the game. There's crazy spending by streaming networks. Nielsen ratings for TV shows are dropping as people are watching TV shows in new ways. All this stuff that we talk about a lot and we all know, but what Joe and Maria Elena have looked into is kind of how is this actually affecting the people in the industry. It's really overwhelming, the amount of television. And I remember when I first started covering this this industry 20 years ago, I wrote for a paper that had two full-time film critic, uh, two full-time television critics, sorry, and a television book editor who also wrote and we had other people who pitched in, and we couldn't cover everything. <laughs> and now I don't even know what you would estimate the percentages at, but it seems like there's five times as much stuff worth writing about. Mm-hmm. We have this conversation about peak TV. We've been having it uh, for at least a year now or so. It, it sort of started, the phrase at least, uh, started when John Landgraf, who's the head of uh, FX Networks, um, uh, went in front of TV critics and said, you know, we have this many TV shows and it is peak television. And and so was born a meme. And so, you know, there's been a lot of talk since then about uh, the number, the quality, uh, you know, how does everyone keep up with it? Uh, but what we really wanted to dig into, uh, which we, you know, thought hadn't been done as extensively, is sort of you're talking between 2009 and 2015, literally the number of shows in production doubled. How do you actually do that? Anytime you have that much of anything being produced that goes up, it's, it's a huge thing. It's like a, literally a wartime effort. You, know, uh, it's, it's, you can almost liken it to World War II, except the stakes are not anywhere near as high. So therefore, it's a very bad analogy. I don't want to put you know, uh, uh, Ryan Murphy's uh, face on a We Can Do It poster or anything. Um, but um, 
you know, although I'd a, like to see that. Yeah. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. Why not? Um, anyway, um, you know, so we sort of wanted to look at sort of how do you physically do it, and what are the ripple effects? And it really is fascinating, you know. And the one thing our editors uh, wanted us to find out is so is everyone in Hollywood just swimming in streams of cash, right? Because when you have this much TV, the thinking is, well, everybody's getting rich. Um, and one of the key findings is that yeah, there is a lot of money being made by a certain level of people, the 1%, as it were, uh, of, of Hollywood. If you're a feature film actor or writer, you're going to get a lot more money than you might have five years ago. There's a real sense of we will pay what it takes to, to get certain people. Um, there's a lot of money being spent to get production done that looks great and also production done quickly. Um, but for everyone else, um, it's it's not necessarily the case that everybody's getting super rich because shows are producing a lot less episodes. They don't have the same sort of back-end and long-term value they once did, and therefore there's not as much uh, little asset creation being made. It's, it's a different kind of business now. Is it more like theatrical film production before television came along in the sense that you make a movie, it plays in theaters, it plays in repertory houses, and that's kind of the end of it? No, there's still a long tail. You've got shows that can live on on Netflix and, and Hulu, but the amount of money they make from those ancillary markets is less than it used to be uh, because, you know, um, it's, it's, it's more diluted. Maria, why don't you tell them what Carlton Hughes told us about sort of the NFL analogy because I kind of like that. Yeah, he said it was like if the NFL suddenly had 90 teams, you know, yay, more football, but it gets diluted because the quality won't be the same. It not, it's not just that the original shows that are airing in primetime are competing against uh, what's on Netflix, both original and, and library, but it's sort of like all repeats are competing against each other. You know, there used to be limited bandwidth. You could only have so many comedies in syndication at any one given time, right? You could only have a couple of dramas that would be on some of the big cable networks. Well, now it's all out there. Right. People could just say, you know what? I'm going to watch The Wire whenever I have free time right. for the next So would six- you say the rerun is kind of not dead, but much less of a moneymaker than it was. Yeah, I think oh, it's... For sure. it, it's fascinating to me that you're describing this universe where it almost sounds like the past has become present again. And, and I've had so many people tell me on social media that they have just begun watching an old show on Hulu, whatever, Amazon. And this is time that they are committing that they are not going to be able to commit to something that is currently in production that's airing on ABC or Fox or HBO or whatever. Yeah, I think that that certainly has an effect on primetime ratings, uh, and, it, and which it all filters down into the whole revenue stream. It's why there are a few shows every year that are still going to end up being big money makers, mostly on the broadcast network. You know, we say in this story, Lee Daniels uh, will not be left a poor man when Empire's done. Um, even though that show's residual value is not going to be anything near what, say, a Law and Order would have been, or a CSI, or an NCIS. Shows that sort of could live on and just sort of just have this meaty sort of run. Um, and so it begins at the primetime level. You know, shows get lower ratings when they're in primetime. That means they are worth less when they go into syndication. If they go into syndication. It means Netflix. You know, we're also, for a brief time, it looked like Netflix would be able to sort of replace all the money that syndication was losing because they were out there as they were building up their library and building up their service. They were spending lots and lots of money. You know, famously, the CW struck a deal with Netflix to put its shows there and and sort of help fund the network for several years. Netflix doesn't need that anymore. Netflix realized, you know what, we, we can't rely on that anymore. One agent talked to me about how it used to be that networks were in the business of creating these assets that everyone benefited from over the course of 10, 15 years, right? Friends, Law and Order, those were shows that were on the air 
did well for NBC. Then they went off NBC. They did well for Warner Brothers. They did well for local stations, which aired them. They did well for TBS, which aired reruns. Now it's – especially when the streaming model, you do a show for Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. You're doing a show whose only main – purpose is to make people want to subscribe to Netflix. It's sort of the HBO model. You know, When you do a show for HBO, it's about making HBO more worthwhile. You're creating value for HBO. Same thing when you create shows now for streaming networks. You're creating value for them, not for everybody. What showrunners today would you say are actually raking in the riches? What is Shonda Rhimes compared to a Dick Wolf back in the day? I don't think she compares to a Dick Wolf back in the day. I think she is doing superbly well in today's climate, um, but her shows don't have that value that Joe was just talking about in syndication. You know, where he made billions off of Law and Order, she won't make that much money, but she's definitely one of the richest people and one of the most successful people working in television right now. Here's the other big thing that's happened is episode orders are getting shorter, right? It used to be you were on a network comedy, for example, and you'd be in the writer's room for eight months breaking stories for 24, 26 episodes a year. You had your hiatus, lather, rinse, repeat. Uh, now there are writers who you know, will do, do two different shows. Some of them are writers, actors, so they might act in one show, write for two other shows. The, the number of episodes can be as few as eight per season. Um, so so guess what? You've got to sort of make up for that. And, and so you do have people doing it that way. And then for the big showrunners, the people like a Carlton Cuse can work on three or four different shows and not write for all of them, but he can sort of have episodic fees for all of them. Some shows will be on a network like USA where there's possibly a long-term syndication value if the show works. Other shows are for, might eventually be for streaming uh, or offer streaming. So it, 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 it's all about sort of new ways of trying to sort of maximize that creator's values. They got their agents definitely, the agents of course, because it's always about themselves when you talk to agents, but um, you know, <laughs> say we have to we have to work a lot harder than we used to. You know, he, he, or lawyers. It's like it used to be. You know, sign a one. You know, you for one client, you sign them up for a three year deal. You do one contract, and that would you wouldn't see them until three years later when you did the new deal and maybe you got them a raise. Now it's you know we got to get them on this project. We got to do them this project. We got to attach them to this. So it's it's a it's definitely a more complicated uh, process. Uh, though no one is, should feel sorry because people are still getting rich. <laughs> right. Hollywood. It's, we're still talking yeah. about millions of dollars. People are definitely making less money. And when you talk to them about it, a lot of them are actually more than willing to make less money because they feel like in this new world order with the shorter episodics and the ability to jump from, you know, I can work on an Amazon show today and still have my FX series uh, in a few months. They feel that that's worthwhile, that creative license, their ability to express themselves in a lot of different ways is worth maybe losing a little bit of the money they would have made had they been on CSI for seven, eight, nine years. You know, we, we talked to Julie Pleck, who runs uh, several different shows for CW, and she said, you know, as the shows are aging, it is harder to hang on to writers, which never happened before. You know, if you got on The Big Bang Theory or CSI or Law & Order, you were set for life, right? As a writer, as an actor, you just kept raking in the money week after week, but the people, especially writers now, want to exercise that creative license and so they'll in year three or year four opt out to skip out and do a transparent for Amazon or, or maybe write a pilot uh, and try to sell their own show 
Right. And in some cases, depending, look, the, every, every situation is different, but, you know, with some of the streaming networks, for example, um, you know, they will compensate for the fact that there's less of that residual value. So if you do a show for Netflix or Amazon, um, your per episode rates will probably be higher than if you do it on a broadcast network, for example, because they know that there isn't as much of a residual value. So they've got to compensate for you there. And, and the same applies for the studios that are making it. If you're um, a studio making a TV show, you know, you usually used to deficit finances show, right? We all know how that worked, for example, with, with ER. Uh, for the first four years, Warner Brothers TV, which produced ER, uh, had a loss on the show. The star salaries went up, but you know their license fees stayed at a certain level. But then as the show got more and more popular, they were able to go to NBC and say, you know, if you want to keep this show, you're going to have to pay us you know, $11 million an episode. And that's where they really got paid. And there was syndication, etc. What Netflix will do with someone who brings them a show, if they don't produce it themselves, which they're starting to do, but from an outside supplier, they say, you're not going to lose a dime on this show. Um, we're going to pay you the full cost of production, plus we're going to give you a premium of 30%. And you're guaranteed a profit, which isn't, by the way, the case in the network model, because what we don't talk about is a lot of times studios or actors or writers will do shows that die after one or two years. And and for the studios who make them, it's just a big loss. It's a write-off because they don't make that syndication value. There is none. The show goes away. Well, if there's only one or two seasons of a show on Netflix, no one's going to lose any money. Yeah, Maria, Steven Soderbergh had some colorful things to say about working for a streaming network like Netflix, correct? Yeah, he, he had some very interesting things to say because while he is super hyped about working in television now and he thinks that he could make more money in, in film, but he'd rather be on television because of all the artistic license that he can have on television, He's, he talked specifically about Netflix, the business model being something that just doesn't work for him because he'd much rather get paid less up front and participate in the profits on the back end. And he just out flat says that he will not create or direct a show for them unless they're willing to adjust that model for him. Netflix is doing that HBO thing where they just want to own the show and have all the rights to it. And that's why they're paying higher fees than the other streaming services going up front Mm -hmm. because they have like this whole global model. However, there is no such thing as residuals and syndication and back end with them. So, you know, whatever shows work and succeed and last for a long time, there's a certain point where the creators of that show are not making any more money on it. And that's what Mr. Soderbergh said, that he's just not in favor of that. So if you make a show for a streaming service, essentially it's work for hire? No, it's not. Um, you get a piece of royalties or residuals of any kind well, yeah, from that. It's, it's the difference between I think. No, there's no residuals. This. Right, there's no. Yeah. There's 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 a because there's there's no syndication. It's just it lives on Netflix now. Right. There are other ways, by the way, that showrunners can get be compensated. They can renegotiate deals. You can better believe that Jenji yeah. Cohen uh, is making more money on subsequent seasons of her show than she did on the first season because she's really essential. Her show's essential. So there are ways showrunners can make money there. Um, but it is – it's sort of uh, – someone said to us – I think this is on the story, but who knows? It's 11,000 words. And that's scaring me <laughs> off from reading it. Uh, um, but make sure you bring snacks as you read it. Um, <laughs> it it's, it's that um, do you want to be an owner or do you want to be an employee? If you mm. want to be an employee, you go to Netflix and you get a really good job and they give you a great working environment and a great uh, everything. Uh, but you're never going to be a shareholder. You're never going to make lots of money. Uh, you're going to make good money for 
for anyone here on this podcast, we'd be yeah. very happy with the money. <laughs> yeah. uh, Steven Soderbergh says, I want to bet on myself. I think I can get my show, uh, The Nick, to sell overseas in Austria and make a boatload of money. Right. So I want the model that way. But there's also someone said to me, and this is not in the story, um, you know, they said, uh, you know, nobody went on girls to get rich, right? And that's an HBO show. It's, 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 but it's sort of a lot like the, the Netflix model because Lena Dunham is not going to be getting residuals 20 years from now from that show that of any real great value. Uh, but everyone who went on girls uh, is infinitely more marketable than they were five years ago. If you do a streaming show um, as opposed to a network show, there's a really much better chance you're going to be in the award season conversation in a big way uh, more than you would be if you did a broadcast show. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can go get movies off of that. There are ways that being right now being on these types of shows can be much more beneficial to a career. And then there's you know and and look and some agents sort of uh, you know they describe it in sort of you know only half benign terms where they say it's like well that's you know that's what they want. One agent said you know if you don't care how much money you make and you don't you're not worried about that you you could live in a shack. Uh, you'll go do a show on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, right? Uh, and if you want to get really rich, you'll go be like Dick Wolf and you'll do like the latest Chicago show. Um, you know, I think Dick Wolf is someone who cares mostly about, you know, success. Um, and I think he wants to make good TV, but I think it's not – he's not an auteur by any sense. Um, he takes pride in his work, I'm sure, but that's not his motivating factor. Other people, you know, just want the chance to be on TV and to do what they want. You know, uh, Nick Offerman – whom we all loved on Parks and Recreation, uh, has told his agents, according to a couple of sources we have, um, I only want to do a streaming show. So, so the operative metaphor here is something close to like that point on The Price is Right where you'd have to choose between the $200 you have in your hand versus what's behind door number two? <laughs> right. That's exactly right. 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 And I mean, what people said over and over again, the ones that went for that, um, that the freedom to tell the story that they wanted to tell was so much worth it. We talked to Greg Berlante, who has six shows, seven shows now, though it keeps fluctuating on the air. Um, and, you know, he's he said to me, it's like, look, I didn't get into this business to make money. I, I He grew up uh, in Hollywood back in the late 90s and early aughts, uh, sort of seeing a lot of these soulless writers who would sign what were called Chauvel deals, where they'd get $9 million for three years uh, to come in from 12 to 4, uh, give a few notes on, on a storyline, on some bad, you know, drama or comedy, and then go surfing. And, and that was fine for those people. He sort of is excited about playing in his different sandbox. Now, he wants to make money. He has high-powered agents who want to make money, and he is making a lot of money. At some point, though, you have to say, oh, okay, I got enough money. Uh, you know, and, and for the people on the lower level, let's, let's talk about them. We should really talk about them, too. Uh, for them, it's not as great. We break news in the store. I think it's news um, that Kevin Costner has been offered um, uh, up to half a million dollars uh, to do a 10-episode limited series at one of the streaming networks. That's $5 million for a season's work, for about four months' works. Um, and that's great. Uh, you've got a lot of other actors, Billy Bob Thornton, who get 350000 to do a show. That's, that's substantial. That's double uh, what someone would get to star in most uh, network shows. So it means that people at the lower level uh, aren't getting nearly as much money. If you're a guest actor who does six episodes of uh, The Good Wife, uh, you're only going to get SAG minimums. Uh, whereas 10 years ago, if you did that for, say, a 10-episode arc in ER, uh, agents tell us you could have made 75000 per episode. So the monies are going in one direction. That's mostly to the people on top. What about an actor in between those two, in between the Kevin Costner and the low-level actor? What is the... A Becky Ann Baker or Nick Offerman or somebody like that. Right. What is the landscape looking like for them financially? 
It depends how much someone wants you. I mean, someone like a Nick Offerman is probably in demand, or he thinks he is, and, and could maybe get a little bit more. They're not going to get super. It just depends where they choose to go. If a broadcast network wants you right during pilot season, um, and and they think you don't even have to be a big star, but they're they're sort of in desperate need of you, you might actually get a little more money than you might have because there's a desperation because a lot of actors now are not doing <laughs> broadcast. Uh, and and so the talent pool shrinks, and so because the networks insist they're they're getting out of the pilot season mode to some degree, but they're still doing a lot of it that way. There are certainly incremental deals. We don't get into the story, get into this in the story that much, but in conversations I heard this, um, you know that, that that definitely they'll pay a little bit more. It's you know it, it depends. It can be one hundred twenty five, one hundred fifty thousand per episode. Uh, it's not bad money, um, but you know someone like Jeffrey Donovan, we also talk about. You know, when he did uh, Burn Notice for USA, he probably started off making, and this was about a decade ago, he probably started off making maybe $75,000, $70,000 an episode for that show. Um, he's just signed a deal to do a show on Hulu. Uh, he'll be the star of it, and he's probably going to make about, what, 180000 per episode. Uh, it's supposedly a two-year guarantee. He could net about $4 million when it's all done for two years' work. That's probably dramatically different, and it's a, it's a beginning show. And, you know, he, he's certainly more famous than he was before Burn Notice, but he's by no means a huge star. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by ABC's The Bachelorette. On The Bachelor, Ben told Jojo he loved her, but her fairy tale ending crashed straight to the ground when he said he loved someone else more and sent her away with a broken heart. It was the most dramatic Bachelor finale ever. Starting on ABC Monday, May 23rd, Jojo is back as the new Bachelorette, the stunning fan favorite from Texas is leaving her heartbreak behind, going from Ben to 26 new men, all hoping to be the one to make her happily ever after finally come true. Will JoJo finally get the happy ending she's always wanted? The surprises start night one, as the guys try to grab her attention right out of the limo to get that coveted first impression rose. A new epic journey of romance and drama is about to begin. The Bachelorette premieres at a special time, Monday, May 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central on ABC. When you say that there are certain actors who just won't do broadcast, uh, is it because of the time commitment? Is it because they have the potential to make more money in the short end working on streaming shows? I mean, like, that's just an extraordinary statement, and I wondered if you could get into it a little more. It's because of the time um, they actually would make less money, you know, because it's only 10 or 12 episodes on, on a streaming or a basic cable, but more and more you're hearing, I mean, even Juliana Margulies in her, uh, exit interviews from the good wife is saying she'll never do it again, that it was a great job, but it was grueling. She had no life and she would rather do shorter order series from now on. I guess now that you have this option, <laughs> it looks pretty good. Right. And also you have more windows, I guess. Like if, it, you know, it used to be that a Bruce Willis when he was on Moonlighting could only do one movie a year and he had to do it during the break and that was exactly. his only chance. And now I guess you could exactly. conceivably you do ten, eight, ten episodes of a Netflix show and then you have you have a couple of months off. You can do a little role in an indie film. You come back, you do another, you know, eight episode right. run of some other show. And it seems like yeah. they probably pay pretty well for actors to do those shows per episode. Right. So sure. there's a premium for that. And, you know, I, before she sort of uh, went into full on Bernie Sanders, when I talked to Susan Sarandon, uh, <laughs> and, um, 
she she was she was at the time she had been signed to do a show for Epics, and uh, she quickly got out of that yeah. show. I think maybe because she heard there was another show coming down the line from Ryan Murphy that she's now going to be doing mm. called Feud. But anyway, she said to me, "It's like you know what? I sort of didn't know if I wanted to do TV, but all my friends were starting to do TV, and then <laughs> I realized, you know, it's eight or ten episodes. Uh, I can shoot that in three or four months. That's like doing a movie. And so for a lot of these A-level actors, it's sort of like, oh, this is now just doing a movie. It's not." Signing away my life. Viola Davis did television because Shonda Rhimes said 15 and out for How to Get It With Murder. That's a show that probably could easily be a very standard procedural show. There would be a very okay. easy and success. They could have turned that into the case of the week. Right. It would well, have been like the practice. It would have it, been the practice. It sounds like, well, Viola has said that she said she would only do the show yep. if it were 15 yep. episodes. She wouldn't yep. do it anymore because she just right. couldn't handle that schedule. There's also the factor that many shows are filming in other places other than L.A. and New York. And so for an actor to pick up and move to Vancouver or wherever for three and a half months, that's okay. If you have to leave your family for nine or ten months out of the year, that's a big problem. So they're, they're finding that those shows that are short order are much, just much more attractive. It's interesting. I, I interviewed the actor Donald Logue years ago when he was on that show Grounded for Life. And at the time, he was a pretty hot indie actor. I mean, he, he was he was somebody who was thought of as being, you know, groomed to be like when he got another 10 years on him, he could be like a Gene Hackman sort of actor. And mm-hmm. he suddenly started doing this sitcom. And I interviewed him and I said, why? Why did you do this? And he said, I have kids. The studio is literally within walking distance yeah. of my house. Yeah. And it's just like I'm working at a bread factory and I go in and I punch a clock. <laughs> yeah. It's literally a nine to five job. And, I, you know, sometimes if we finish early, I can go pick my kids up from school. If you're an actor on a successful sitcom, that's the best deal you could ever have in terms of the hours, the money. I mean, most comedies take one week off the month. So you're working three weeks out of the month and your only long day is the tape day. The rest of the week, you're working normal six to eight hour days. Maria, can we talk a little bit about the problems that arise with producing shows in these cities you mentioned, like Vancouver and Atlanta? What, what are we now seeing there in terms of yeah. how the boom is affecting production? Yeah, and, that, and that's actually everywhere, New York, L.A., mm-hmm. everywhere, because, because all of the talent pools are depleted. There's not enough crews. The experienced crews that you're used to working with have signed up to work on another show. Now you have to scramble and work with people that you've never worked before, maybe people that don't have as much experience and you know, that, that can create problems. Um, the, the job of the line producer, which is like the right hand of the showrunner on the ground, logistically making, you know, hiring the crews, finding locations, getting equipment, making sure everything's running on time. That person is becoming more and more coveted because there aren't enough of them. People are getting promoted from the bottom into that position to fill it, but they're not as experienced, so that's um, creating some hiccups. It's a big problem to find like the kinds of if you need a crane, if you need if you need something special for a scene. It used to be that like the showrunner or the producer of the of the writer of that episode called you and said, "Tomorrow, can you get me this?" And within 24 hours or less, you could get it. And now you're competing with all these companies and so it and might with other you, shows as well yeah it might take you three or four days one of the examples mm. we have in the story is they were looking for this 50-foot crane for an episode of Bates Motel and it took him like three or four days because there was only a certain number of those cranes in Vancouver and they were being used by other productions so you know and, and we've we've talked to even um, people that's talked about how 
competitive is just to get good catering, and I can vouch for that because I was on the set of Unreal recently, and the catering was terrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you had um, this you had this great quote from an anonymous studio executive who said, "I'm literally having a discussion today." about picking up a show before the network is ready because Netflix is coming in and they want to steal our crew. Yeah. Would we well, ever be having this conversation in any right. other time? Right. And and that was sort of that speaks to the fact that, you know, production is so intense. And, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit at the edges. Um, it, a whole other story, but tax incentives are really a big part of something that's sort of helping to fuel this boom, um, or at least sort of accounting for the fact that ratings are down and, and it's, you know, production costs are going up. Uh, thankfully for the studios, these tax incentives sort of make up for that, the 20, 30%. Otherwise, they'd be bleeding more money. Um, but, you know, the production now chases the latest tax incentives. And, you know, they are a big part of what makes it financially feasible to do these shows. And and so if you're in a market that has a really good tax incentive, you want to protect that 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 you want to predict your crew. There's so much going on that in this case, you know, there was uh, there was a show that was a pretty obvious renewal because um, I remember I'm not going to say what it was. Um, and the studio executive kept saying, "Well, just tell us it's renewed." It's like, "Well, we can't." It's like, "Well, if you don't, you may lose. We may have to shoot the show somewhere else, or we'll not be able to afford it. So you better pick it up, or else we're going to lose it to Netflix because Netflix was going in there saying, "Well, we're going to start production on this show, you know, and we're going to hire this crew. We we can offer this crew money for 13 episodes. You can't offer them now." And so at one point, the the network was like, well, well, we'll agree to pick up the crew. And the studio was like, are you kidding me? You're just going to pay for the crew and not? It's just, it's, it's, there's some yeah. insane conversations going on. Can we, can we talk just a second about the definition of success? We've, we've kind of established, I think, that for a show to be successful in a streaming service, you simply have to get a streaming service to buy your show. But for something like a network show or something like a, um, the Americans, how do you how do you get to the point where that show can be considered a success? Like how how many stages do you have to pass through? How many hoops do you have to jump through? And how are things different now than they were ten years ago? You know, there's still a marketplace, right? The thing that helps is that you cobble together if you're a studio making a show um, for cable. You can definitely still make money or broadcast because you can then sell that show internationally. International has been a big driver of, of revenue to shows uh, if it's the right kind of show. Um, you can um, still hopefully have syndication. Um, it's unlikely, but, you know, but Netflix might pick it up. You know, if, if there's a show on FX that does well, um, it'll, get a, it'll get a syndication deal, American Horror Story, whatever there. Um, so, you can then, you know, it's it's funny. Netflix also they they sort of take over some of the money. It depends upon the kind of show. It's changing the kinds of shows people produce. I think to some degree. We don't get into this, but I do think people have an eye on. All right, what could possibly play? What it's actually one of the reasons why you've seen an increase in serialized shows because streaming networks love those. They keep people engaged, mm-hmm. and so if you it's, if you know that you can get that sort of audience, that that syndication value is better in the long term. It probably still won't be enough to make up for the money that you used to make. Um, but you can still piece it together. It's not impossible. Um, it's just a little more difficult. So after all this, would you say that we have actually reached peak TV? <laughs> Depends who you talk to. There are uh, one agent who thinks that we could be up to 500 shows this year versus 409 from last year. Um, they better it, they better invent a cloning machine for television critics. Exactly. You better hire a couple more TV uh, columnists. Um, they they could uh, you know we also could see some new entrants into the space. Uh, um, we could see YouTube. We could see uh, one of the telephone companies like AT and T or Verizon sort of trying to launch their own OTT, which means over the top. Uh, streaming service. I believe Verizon um, CBS, just bought or 
I don't know when, but they own DirecTV now. So it AT and T, AT and T. I'm sorry, AT and T. Yes, yeah. But they're Verizon. definitely working on. So they're yeah. It seems like mm-hmm. they're moving in that mm-hmm. direction. And Verizon might do something. And you have CBS. Is is you know there could be a Good Wife spinoff that goes on the CBS, what's now called CBS All Access. That I pray by the time most of you are listening to this, they've announced a new name for that service. Uh, <laughs> but the Star Trek show will be in there. Um, you could see some more people go in. Um, you could also see some cable networks go away. Right there, there may not be a need for an AMC, a Sundance, and an IFC. They might be just one, so that might reduce the number of shows there. But on the other hand, it might make some networks that have mostly been in the reality or unscripted space sort of say, like, if we want to stay relevant and stay on cable bundles, we better start doing some scripted shows. So in the short term, you might actually see an increase. Longer term, it's it's anyone's uh, guess. I mean, there are in the story, we talk to people who say, you know, what happens if, like last summer, when a lot of media stocks um, sort of took a, a stumble because people were worried about, you know, people cutting their cable subscriptions and maybe they don't need to pay as much for TV. You know, what if suddenly uh, the, the, you know, Netflix profits sort of take a tumble? What if uh, Amazon wakes up one day and Jeff Bezos says, eh, you know what, eh, you know, I'd rather just uh, fly drones and, 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 you know, go to space, whatever whimsy has, and suddenly that's out of the marketplace. Together, those three services, Netflix, Hulu, and, and Amazon, are, are spending about $10 billion on, on, on programming right now, both in terms of acquisitions and, and originals. You know, that could be money that could go away. So there are definitely fears. Um, um, and we don't then, know really how they're monetizing it. Subscriptions. I mean, just you know, subscriptions. H- uh, that's uh, HBO uh, subscriptions globally. Remember, they're right. they're sort of global network, so they can get people to pay everywhere. Um, you know, HBO has long been one of the most successful entertainment properties uh, in the world, uh, billion dollar profits many years, um, and it's the same sort of model. Netflix has just sort of reshaped it uh, uh, for for the for a new era. Um, you know, there are a lot of worries, uh, but for right now, things seem to be going full steam ahead. What's to stop a network with a huge back catalog like an HBO or an ABC from just starting their own version of Netflix where everything they've ever made is available and you pay like three ninety nine a month? Well, HBO already has. They have an HBO Now, um, and that's basically what they own. They put up there. For a broadcast network, the problem is they don't always own all their own stuff. So there are a lot of shows on NBC right. that were produced by Warner Brothers or this one or that one. Um, but the networks are thinking of getting into the streaming space with Hulu uh, to, to go direct to consumers, and there might be some premium. We could see CBS All Access. You know, they sort of are already doing that. CBS All Access does have uh, titles from their Paramount library and, and CBS Studios library that are on there. Uh, but you're definitely going to see more experimentation with that. Um, there'll definitely be a, a lot of different business models. And then the other thing we point out briefly at the story is, you know, never underestimate um, Hollywood's ability to monetize content. Um, you know, we hmm. saw how uh, VHS tapes begat DVDs begat streaming. Um, there's a lot of talk right now about virtual reality and, and modified reality. Who's not to say that in five years we're paying $5 a month to sort of live in the world of Breaking Bad, uh, you know, where you put on your headset and you slip away and you try to get, you know, help uh, Walt get <laughs> I was going to say, and you get savagely beaten in the desert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. no, no thank you. Uh, Hollywood I, I much would prefer modified Mad Men, uh, virtual reality. And <laughs> I would love to go hang out with Don Draper and get drunk. Um, uh, you know, uh, so there are different ways. Uh, you know that that that, mo- that this all this entertainment content. At the end of the day, uh, someone said to me, you know, Hollywood finds a way to monetize good stuff. If we keep telling good stories, if we keep creating interesting characters, we will. And that I think for, for Matt, you as a critic, should appreciate this. Is is the content is getting better in part because you know. 
that what used to matter most in the old network model was scale and volume. How many eyeballs can you get on my show? You know, you get the least objectionable programming. What can you get everyone to watch? There's still a model for that. CBS does it sort of well, but less well than they used to. Now it's really about what can we get that's engaging, that people love, that people want to actually pay for, that people demand to seek out, that want to tell their friends about on social media. And that, for creators, is a really exciting time. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellafint. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can reach me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. I'm Marielena Fernandez, and you can reach me on Twitter at Ryder Chica. And I'm Andy Rooney. No, actually, I'm <laughs> <laughs> And you can see me on Twitter at TV Mojo. Don't forget the last E. Thanks for listening. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. All of our younger listeners will be like, what? Maybe they call them loafers because you don't have to tie them. <laughs> Did you ever wonder? What is it about oatmeal?